Hello, welcome to the Carousel Podcast. I have with me today screenwriter and director Adam Turner and games historian and collector Paul Stormberg to talk about the founding of Dungeons and Dragons. So I am not a avid Dungeons and Dragons player. In fact, I've never played it. Um, And I met Adam and he started telling me the story and I was like, this is really cool. And why have I never heard this before? And so they have a podcast called When We Were Kings. No, not when, no, we, no. <laughs> when we were wizards. Just kidding. Uh, when We Were Wizards. And uh, When We Were Wizards is the really cool um, biopic almost style of Gary Gygax, who is the founder of Dungeons and Dragons. And I started listening to the podcast and I got to the part where you start describing the moment in which they realize they're really onto something here. And, and the games of the past, which had all been these sort of role-playing, or not, sorry, actually not role-playing, they had been these um, war reenactment kind of model games. And then there was this other type of games and they came together to create this thing that was happening more in your head than on the board. And I just knew I had to have you guys on because it's just such an incredibly cool story that I cannot believe I haven't heard before. And I'm completely addicted to the podcast when we were wizards now. And I keep trying to Google stuff about it and there's nothing there. There's no like proper history of this. So you guys are really the first people that are doing it. And um, so I would love for you to just introduce yourselves and just talk about why and how you caught on this story to tell. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to take away from those who've, who've, uh told versions of this story in the past certainly many people have uh, uh made an effort to do that uh, i would say this is the first certainly the first podcast about the history of the game and its creators and the company uh that published the game um and so uh i think paul and i when we first started talking a few years ago, we just felt like there was a real opportunity to tell this story uh, in a fresh and new way about the people that lived through it and, and specifically uh, using their voices, um, which hadn't been done. I mean, that's something that, that I think hadn't been done. There are documentaries out there, um, but none of them cover uh the same time period i think or or have the same scope that we're you know we're trying to to achieve here um but uh but yeah i mean you're right there's not a whole lot out there and certainly there is a lot about gary i mean gary is a very prominent figure but there's not a lot about some of his partners and um you know, there's a lot about Gary and his the co-creator of the game, Dave Arneson, um, but not as much about the company and the inner workings, the day to day of how that company functioned, his partnership with a couple of other with a, with two brothers, uh, uh, Brian Bloom and, and Kevin Bloom. And I just felt that was a piece of the story that needed to be told. Um, and uh Absolutely. And it's and when you get into the details of it, it's this totally like, you know, corporate warfare story that you would just never expect. It is absolutely corporate warfare. That's right. In 
the late seventies and early eighties, I, I would say, but, but, you know, dialing back and, and, um, you know, you touched on this uh, earlier. This really is a brand new kind of game. I'm absolutely their role-playing games didn't exist. They didn't have, even have a name for this uh, at the time. I mean, Paul, do you want to walk us through some of the sort of the early history of, of how this evolved? Sure. Uh, so uh, basically when I got into this whole thing, uh, I Ran, I run an online auction house called the Collector's Trove, and I started handling the collections of various um, role-playing game designers, artists, uh, company insiders. And uh, through those connections, I was able to get access to a lot of different internal company memos, personal stories, personal letters, uh, documents that uh, just weren't commonly available. And a lot of the story is usually told from one person's perspective. I mean, even if you had lived through it and you were back there, you would only get that person's perspective. But because of my unique position, I was able to take the personal stories, the letters, the memos, the documents, and look at it from many different perspectives. Uh, and so by looking at it by so many different perspectives, you get a truer feeling of the story. Uh, and then we actually have interviews with the many of the people who are there. And so we get to hear not just, I mean, we put together the historical facts of what happened, but then we bring the voices in to let us know how they felt when things these things were happening, when the genesis of the game happened and what the promise of the game brought and the the struggles that were brought on through financial stress and financial success. Mm -hmm. So anyways, that's just kind of to distinguish our podcast from many other stories which are out there. Uh, I mean, it really brings probably the most, well, I, I think it brings the most comprehensive view of the story uh, it, to the listener. So let's talk about role-playing games. They didn't exist before 1972. Uh, and technically uh, they uh, weren't, I mean, they weren't published uh, and available to the general public until 1974. But there's only a few types of tabletop games ever created by humanity. And I don't mean that lightly, I mean humanity. I mean, this is a podcast about a game and I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, who cares about a game, you know? Uh, and, but uh, it's important because before uh, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, there were only about six types of tabletop role, uh, tabletop games. There were dice games, uh, there were uh, miniature games, board games like chess, uh, there were tile games like dominoes, card games, uh, and then there is, uh, there is a new type of game invented, a, a seventh type of game created by humanity. I mean- Wait, hold on. So let's go through those for the yeah, six that existed. Sure. So it's tiles, which is- <clears throat> dominoes. dominoes, Mahjong. 
Yeah, Desire of the Dollars. You have like chess, which is a board game. Board, like boards. And also uses miniatures, technically. Right. And then you have cards. That's three. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what else? Uh, you have dice. Dice, uh, four. Uh, miniatures, which we covered under board games as well with chess. Okay. Uh, and uh, then you have uh, pen and paper games. Oh, okay. Which are like tic tac toe or hangman oh, yeah, or yeah, yeah. or connect the dots <laughs> and i mean those games have been being played for millennia they yeah. seem like they're really common oh i played that when i was a kid but if you think about it a tic-tac-toe is the world's most concise war game mm -hmm. and they even Art. use it in the movie war games <laughs> you know as an example of the futility of war so it's the ultimate example of the futility of war but yeah. So you have these six types of games created by humanity. And then for the first time in, you know, thousands of years, you get a new type of game. Really That's is a, incredible. That's it's that that moment is the creation. Okay. So, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so, <laughs> so <laughs> if you think about it, I mean, do you know who created chess? Yeah, no, no, no. Do Mr. you know who chess. created dice? The, the Babylonians, <laughs> Albert you know? Chess. Uh, but so yeah. we know the guys who created this seventh game in human history. Yeah, wow. And they All lived right. in our lifetime, and they lived in the United States. And these two guys created this game together, uh, and that's Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax. And of course, yeah. Gary was the driving force in getting it published and writing it fully in a realized form and getting it out to the world. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's a humanity level event, even though it's just a game. It's a humanity level event. And we have this unique opportunity to understand these people who created this humanity level event, because we can't go back and find out who created chess or who created dice you know we can't ask them questions we can't analyze it we can't look at all the angles but we can through our podcast look yeah. at this cultural phenomenon which has really changed the world totally. and isaac just to you know sort of uh add some perspective to this the reason it's an important kind of game and the reason it's uh, the way you can distinguish it from all of those other games is it's the only game that really relies on uh, collaboration, collective imagination. This is a game that does not work unless everybody around you playing the game uh, suspends any kind of disbelief and uses their imagination collectively to uh, play the game. It's also a game that doesn't end. Right. Every other game has an ending. It has a victory. But, Paul, you can talk about some of these campaigns you've been playing for what, 20 years? Yeah, I, uh, I'm i still playing the same campaign I started in 1993 <laughs> when a bunch of my high school buddies who all played the game together were at my prenuptial dinner. <laughs> and they said, you know, we used to play the heck out of Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, we used to spend hours and hours on the weekends playing that game. Why don't we play anymore? And, I, and so we all decided to get back together uh, and we've been playing since October of 1993. And some of the players I had been playing with since 1981 in, you know, various forms. But, um, you know, for those millennia of game design years that we're talking about, Adam was touch touching on the 
the kind of the creative cooperative uh, um, nature of the game for thousands and thousands of years, gaming was always about uh, winners and losers and uh, competition. And, uh, you know, winning meant, you know, winning was success and losing was failure. And so for thousands of years, that was the paradigm. And then suddenly this role-playing game breaks that paradigm. No longer is it about beating your opponent or beating the other team or competition. Instead, it's a cooperative game that everybody uses their imagination to enrich each other's experience in the game. It's a phenomenal paradigm shift in gaming. So the, these guys, the games that they were playing before they had this Copernican revolution or you know, whatever you would call it, <clears throat> what were those competitive games? The sort of, can you describe the type of games they were playing at that time that led to the breakthrough? Sure. Uh, it was it was mainly board games, uh, board war games. Usually, they would have counters with statistics for an army group or whatever, and you could play World War II or Ancients or you know just any time period you wanted to. But there was only really one game company producing any sort of games, and they only produced about one game a year, and that was Avalon Hill. Yeah. And they produced games like Kriegspiel and Tactics and Gettysburg, and they were all war games. Uh, were, and so you would have were, a map and you would move the counters. Yeah. And then when you would run into somebody, you would compare the numbers and decide who won or who lost that particular engagement. And so those games uh, were also played alongside miniatures war games, where people would take tin or lead or... Um, uh, some sort of figurine uh, that represented the the soldier or the unit or the battalion or whatever level the game was being played at, and you would move those miniatures across the board. and And HG uh, Wells famously had the the first war game, uh, which was um, uh, Little Wars, which he played with tin soldiers on the floor of his parlor and knocked him over with a gun that shot a, 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 a piece of artillery, a naval gun, which had, was spring-loaded and fired matchsticks or dowels or something like that out of it. And, and so that, that, sort of, uh, that sort of miniature game was also being played, but it was determined the same way with either statistics being compared or rolling dice, this, you know, a couple six-sided dice, depending on the strength of your unit. And uh, so those were the main games that were being played at that time, board war games, miniature war games. Uh, and then uh, Dave Arneson's group up in Minnesota uh, started experimenting uh, with uh, a new sort of game. Uh, a man named Dave Wesley came up with this new style of game, which he called Brownstein, which instead of playing everybody playing, uh, you know, a thousand people or 10,000 soldiers on a battlefield. Instead, they played one individual character in a very specific scenario. And the scenario was Brownstein, which is a town set in a Napoleonic time period where the French army is coming into town and the local partisans are 
gathering together to get control of the uh, student union group from uh, Brown, Brownstein University. And everybody has their little job. And it was one of the first, uh, a lot of these games used referees. And so uh, typically the board, the, the board war games didn't use referees, but the miniature games did use referees because sometimes something would come up and somebody would have to be the arbiter of that. And so in this Brownstein, the referee kind of made up this scenario for all of the players. And Dave Wesley ran this Brownstein and I believe it was in 1968 was his first one. And that's when uh, they first started trying this sort of whole scale role playing. And it's but, a, yeah, Isaac, we should mention it's a, it's a departure. I just want to make this point, Paul, which mm -hmm. is that uh, what Dave Wesley was doing was a real departure from that whole category of war games and, and historical miniatures, because those were very historically based games. They were they were rooted in history. Right. So you're going to recreate a Napoleonic battle or a, or an aerial battle or a naval battle. But you're you're absolutely drawing from history itself. And now you have the beginning of or this bubbling stew, we'll call it of uh, a game that is still loosely rooted in history, but also borrows uh, or, or relies on some of the uh, imagination of the players. It's historical, but it's not a recreation of a battle or something uh, uh, that, that actually happened. It's, it's, there's a little bit of imagination that begins to funnel its way into this gameplay. Uh, I just wanted to make that point, Paul. Yeah, so there's this time period where the number of games is extremely limited and these fan clubs start up and they start these fanzines and they start communicating with their ideas of new game designs or variants on games that exist or maybe we should adjust this game by not allowing this panzer group <laughs> to move this this quickly and so all of that sort of, as Adam says, this sort of bubbling stew of creativity and ideas are being shared uh, through these fanzines. And these fanzines are like a modern day forum, yeah. uh, uh, you know, an online discussion group where people are all interested in the same thing. And they say, well, you know, I have this idea for this. And, and so everybody is riffing off of each other and they realize, well, we only get one game every year from Avalon Hill and oh well it's a civil war game i guess if you don't like the civil war period go back and play the one that they had last year for for a world war II armor game you know and so so there's this burgeoning fan base who really wants to create uh new games and new variants of games and so these guys start amateurishly designing their own games and, and publishing... so is that, is that what Brownstein, Brownstein, is Brownstein? that one of these? Is that one? The... Brownstein is kind of more of an internal experimentation okay. <laughs> that is happening in uh, what we call the Minnesota group, which is yeah. Dave Arneson's group of friends. So there's the Dave Arneson group in Minnesota, and then there's the Wisconsin group. Right. The Gary Lake Gygax Geneva, group Gary in Gygax. Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. So right. they're up in the Twin Cities. Yeah. And Gary's down in Lake Geneva in southern Wisconsin. Okay. So, all right. So, sorry, keep going. So, you have Brownstein happening sort of internally with this Minnesota group. Right. And then everybody else is doing these fanzines to sort of 
like um well they're publishing rules and uh, in in these fanzines and they're using the forum to meet other players so they all you know in the very earliest days the way these guys met each other is they would go and check out you know books like little wars from the public library and and check out the the library card and say and and see who checked this book out before they did. <laughs> and then they track that person down and say, "Hey, do you want to play games with me?" Wow. And that's sort of how it began and then it I think it grew uh through student groups and and schools and so forth. Um but that was the earliest days and then they would publish these fanzines which would find their way to all the gamers in the Midwest. The Midwest was really this sort of cauldron of 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 creativity at this time. Uh, and you wouldn't think of it necessarily. It's not necessarily a, a center of commerce. Uh, well, certainly Chicago is, but and, and, and Minneapolis, but Lake Geneva, a little Wisconsin town, you know, that's really out of the way. And because this, because Gary Gygax, you know, grew up there as a child uh, and found his way back there uh, early in, in life with a, a very young family, um, and he didn't drive. Well, he could drive, but he just sort of refused to drive. And because of that fact, he planted his flag in the ground at, at, at his little house, uh, 330 Center Street in Lake Geneva. And that became sort of the command center for all of these, uh, not only his fanzine writing, where he would contribute articles to all the fanzines that would be, would be distributed across the country uh, to, to gamers everywhere, um, uh, so, so there was that fact, and then he would create these groups and these inventors groups, like the uh, uh, War Game Inventors Guild. And, and you know, Paul, you want to probably probably get a yeah. More so you've got this really enthusiastic group of you know kids to middle aged men, all interested in this subject matter. They're being limited by. Uh, the limitations of Avalon Hill and how many war games are being published every year. And so then they surge past this with this fanzine sort of attitude, but they're learning about what they're creating. And uh, eventually uh, Gary Gygax decides that, um, well, so, so he knows what Dave Arneson is doing with his group. And Dave Arneson knows what, Gary is doing in his group. And so this, this, this uh, really dynamic period of excitement and invention and creativity and collaboration uh, becomes really important. And Gary loved to collaborate. And so uh, he eventually, uh, he eventually, uh, eventually people start realizing, you know, we could probably be our own game company. And so a few little groups start becoming their own game company, specifically with the mind to create these new, uh, different, inventive, novel uh, war games. And uh, one of these groups is called uh, A Guide on Games. It's started by a man named, well, uh, I, I should say one of the culminations of this, most of these guys were just meeting, uh, they just knew each other from letters, and from, from the fanzines. But in 1967, well, there's a big war game group that Gary helps found uh, with Scott Duncan and Bill Spear called 
the U.S. Continental Army Command. <laughs> and so these are groups that play certain games together that are war games that are played by mail. One of these big games is called Diplomacy. Diplomacy is where prior to World War I, everybody plays a certain country and you try to position resources and troops and ships and material for this upcoming war. You try to place it where you want. And in addition to just the movement on the board, which is a very simple, if you move in and there's nobody to back up the other guy, they get bumped off the board. But if they have somebody in a territory behind them, they can't get bumped, you get ejected. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really simple uh, it's a really simple game in that, but between turns, you talk to France. If you're the German chancellor, you go and talk to France, or if you're the German, uh, the, the king of Prussia or whoever, you go and you talk to another country's uh, diplomats and you try to convince them to maybe move troops out of this country and let you move troops into this country. And if you do that, then I'll leave the Baltic and you can go into the Baltic and so it's this very, um, it's this very interstitial sort of, <laughs> yeah. sort of uh, machinations trying to get one up on the other player. And eventually one country comes out the winner in all of this. So it's a very sort of backstabby, betrayally sort mm -hmm. of game. And, but it involves a little role playing. And, you know, this is the time it, this is really coming to the fore. If you're playing the Pope, or if you're playing the king of, uh, if you're playing England, for example, uh, you know, if you're playing uh, the leaders of this country or that country, you're, you're actually taking on their persona and they would write these letters to each other, like with, you, you know, royal, uh, royal uh, heraldry on the yeah. letterhead yeah. and, you know, from the office of the British government of war and all this other sort of stuff. And so is so, that the part where it becomes role playing when you start to like take on the characteristics of your character or, or that's just part of it? It, it it's part of it yeah but okay. but it's not a distinct game yet it's still yeah. diplomacy you right, know right, right, right. and yeah. and you're just taking on this role until the game ends and it ends and that's it. Right. Yeah. So one of the key things, as Adam said, is that a role-playing game doesn't end. Right, Adam? Yeah. Right. So there were a couple other games like this. Is my mic still? Yeah, yeah it's good. It's good. Uh, there were a couple other games like this. Uh, there was one in particular that Gary Gygax had, uh, uh, co-created or really developed with a, a young college student named Jeff Perrin, and they made a game called Chainmail. But the, one of the critical things is Chainmail was uh, was really a, a battle type of game, um, but uh, and, and it was historically based, but Gary thought he would have a little fun with it because Gary, um, and this is what, again, distinguished Gary from a lot of the other um, uh, folks in Minneapolis and St. Paul and elsewhere is Gary had this real passion for fantasy literature. So he loved, uh, you know, the Robert E. Howard Conan books and that, that sword and sorcery sort of, sort of uh, uh, imagery. And he included in this game Chainmail a fantasy supplement, meaning right. you, instead of it being absolutely based in reality now he's going to add these little fantasy elements 
Yeah. And that was a real game changer, really sort of blew a lot of people's minds that you could you could step away from the historical accuracy and incorporate these imaginative concepts. Mm -hmm. and, and, he, yeah. and he publishes that through this guide on games company run by this Don Laurie, one of the first kind of amateur right. go to professional groups. Right. And he also uh, so Gary's a real great collaborator. So he collaborates on this chain mail. That's one of their first titles they published through guide on. And then he finds out about this game that uh, Dave Arneson is running. Now the two of them met at a, at a, uh, an event called Gen Con, which I don't know if you're familiar with Gen Con, but now about 85,000 people a year attend Gen Con every year in Indianapolis. And it's, uh, it's a big gaming convention. Uh, but it was founded by Gary Gygax in 1968, and it was meant to bring his big game club together and all of these far-flung people. It was designed to get them to all come together and be face-to-face. -face. And remember, and Gary starts the, Gary I just starts want to make this point. Gary starts that in 1968. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to make the point that I was making earlier is that Gary didn't drive. Yeah. And so that, again, he, it's another way he sort of made – uh, Lake Geneva, the center of this this emerging type of gameplay, because he creates this um, uh, convention and invites everyone to come to him, because he doesn't want to go to them, <laughs> really. Right. Or, you know, or the, very the first convention is literally held two blocks from his house. <laughs> yeah. so he just walks down there. <laughs> right, right. How many people do we know? How many people at this time? Like how how big was like this market at this time? Okay, so the first year was eight people, right? Paul? Eight people. No, 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 no. So well, that's Gen Con Zero, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So there's <laughs> there's uh, Gary's Game Club, the U.S. Continental Army Command, gets renamed and becomes the International Federation of uh, Wargaming. And they have a monthly fanzine called the International Wargamer. There are, by about 1972, there's 700 people in this, this game club. And so when Gary holds the first uh, game convention for this club, they hold one in 67, but it's a disaster. They order 50 chicken dinners and 25 people show up and it's a financial okay. catastrophe. But that's Gen Con that's, zero. That's that's no, right. no, that that was in Malvern, PA. And oh, then Gary, a couple months later, decides to get some people over for a weekend in 1967, August 1967. He has about uh I, I don't know, 22 guys over, I think, okay. over the course right. of the weekend. <laughs> so that's called Gen Con Zero. And then in 1968, uh, after this, he he decides, you know. I could run my own convention, you know, I just will rent horticultural hall. I'll charge a dollar a day. I'll charge quarters for hot dogs and sodas. <laughs> and so he does it and he runs it with his family and friends of his local gaming club, the Lake Geneva Tactical Studies Association, just a few friends that game at his house every weekend. And uh, they have a hundred people show up and that exactly covers the, <laughs> the, the charge for renting this you know, Tudor style uh, garden club in the middle of yeah. Lake Geneva. So this and is so, still, it, it just, I just want to like put this in perspective. Yeah. Today is video games and Comic-Con. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about Comic-Con is what? Like hundreds of thousands. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. so many people. Yeah. And this is really the beginning of that, right? I mean, this is really kind of the 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 first we're talking about fantasy and we're talking about gaming, which in today's yeah. world is like the center of culture, really, you know? Right. And it's, so it's like, 
yeah. this is still, even though these guys are kind of masters of this niche, this is still a tiny, tiny niche of people. There's like 700 people worldwide who's mm. who are doing this, mm -hmm. right? And then it bubbles over and becomes. Yeah, well, I mean, we should we should skip ahead really to, to well, that part. I'll let let, okay, let me just ahead. get to yeah, this. Well, so yeah. basically, in 1969, Gen Con, Gary meets Dave Arneson, and he plays in one of Dave Arneson's uh, naval games later. Uh, and Gary decides, uh, you know, we should publish your rules, Dave. And then they collaborate. So that establishes Gary's connection and co-authorship or co-collaborator uh, with a game. And that first one is uh, Don't Give Up the Ship or D-Guts, as we like to call it. Anyways, that's where this connection comes from. First between, Arneson, all these... sorry, between, I was, between Arneson and... Gygax. Between Arneson and Gary Gygax, because okay. Gary has it in Lake Geneva. Dave Arneson comes down from the Twin Cities to play in to play games at this convention with other people. And that's where that connection is made. They knew of each other, but that's the first time they met face to face. Got it. And, and it so starts their relationship of um, collaborators. Yeah. So it seems to me like tell me if I'm getting this right. Um you have the um, like functional changes are happening in Minnesota mm -hmm. and you have the sort of substantive, like, like topical changes happening with Gary mm -hmm. and these with the two fantasy things, yep. with the fantasy. So you have the fantasy coming into the war games and then you have these, these functional changes of how gaming literally works happening in Minnesota. And these things are kind of coming together. Right. And, and there's so the critical mass is is really uh, when uh, Dave Arneson develops this uh, fantasy. It's well, it becomes a fantasy game called Blackmore. Uh, and he incorporates uh, some of or borrows some of the the fantasy supplement rules from this game Chainmail that Gary had had created with Jeff Perrin into this game that he creates in Minneapolis called called Blackmore and he brings it to Gary and shares with him the game and there's a fateful night in early November uh remind me of the year Paul 19 I think 1972 Actually, it's, right it's that January oh, sorry, it's the January winter, February 1972 yeah. right 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 for years it was the apocryphal November meeting but we've since discovered that it was actually in January oh, <laughs> right right okay so so it's January 1972 and uh and it's really just six people around this uh, kitchen table in in Lake Geneva. It's Gary, his son, a couple of neighborhood kids, Rob and Terry Kuntz, and uh, two players from uh, Minneapolis, uh, uh, Dave McGarry and Dave Arneson. And they play really for the first time um, what becomes D and D. Um, it's not D and D at that moment. Yeah, but, it's 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 really Arneson's version of Blackmore, uh, which was just meant to be a medieval fantasy game. Uh, and later, uh, after they just start it, then they bring in Chainmail to codify some rules and to expand the kinds of monsters and creatures and that sort of thing. And then they bring this sort of semi-codified Blackmore game 
down to Gary and demonstrate. He was they they only exchanged letters and phone calls. And you know, you're trying to explain this type of game that is mind expanding, and no one's ever played this sort of game. And eventually, Gary just decides, you got to come down and show me this game. Yeah, but I think to your point, Isaac is. You know, here was, you know, you've got six people around a kitchen table in, in 1972. They don't even know what they have yet. They're not even calling it role playing game. That term hasn't even been invented yet. Yeah. And then you, know, you jump forward 50 years and now it's millions of people playing the game. And the uh, the foundations of this game have since created um structures and ideas that have just reverberated throughout all of society i mean i mean everything the entire entertainment industry is 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 certainly uh borrows from it today when you've got you know game of thrones and and uh lord of the rings and and i mean the passion certainly lord of the rings existed prior to it but the passion for it yeah, the, the fandom, interest of it, the fandom elements. Yeah, to really come from the there. historian here yeah. is still yeah. stuck before the creation of the game. You guys yeah. have moved on okay, to sorry. 2022. I'm right, still sorry. in 1973, uh, well, January 1973. So I'm still back there. They play the, okay. left me behind. Go for it. Go for it. Terrible. <laughs> but I just want to put it in context and in, in perspective yeah. a little bit. I mean, yeah. it, it was really this what we might think of, you know, moment in history that could have easily been missed. I mean, it, yeah. You know who it may not have taken off. Who knows? And yeah. suddenly now it 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 really impacts every corner of our lives. I mean, even you know every video game that you play now borrows from the structures and the rules that were totally. know, codified I mean, then. You mean like role playing video games? I'm sure it's all built on this single idea and all the. Well, it's built on that architecture, which is what's right. so interesting. Yeah. It's it, yeah. you know it all started with just some this stew of ideas. And now it's crept into every corner of our lives. Yeah. Completely. Even if you don't recognize it, even if it's some something that even if you don't play games, even if you don't play video games, yeah. you know, you have an avatar on the Internet. Totally. That's a character that that is a, a somebody that's between that's a that's a, a creation that's between that that separates you from other avatars, let's call them. Right. But that didn't exist before. That was a creation that really was born of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. That idea of that character, that character profile is such a huge idea, um, but it didn't exist. So Gary brings Dave down and that makes the essential connection. And Gary is so excited by this concept that the next morning he just can't wait to figure out what to do with it. But okay, he wait, still no, doesn't sorry. know yeah, what it I is. Wait, wait, sorry to interrupt. I want to, I want to get to the next part of the story, but I, yep. I just for people who have never played before, mm -hmm. including me, this Blackmore game seems like it's pretty close to the final thing. Is that pretty correct? close? Yeah. So, how would a game of Blackmore, and and this seems to be the moment where they realize what they have. Mm -hmm. So, in we we don't have to get too deeply into it, but what are the like. What are the mechanics of it that how would it actually work differently than what they've been doing already? Like what what's well, the key the, points? It's you know, Rob Kuntz has written a book called Dave Arneson's True Genius, which looks at the paradigm shift that is role-playing games, but essentially um it's not the rules or the dice or necessarily 
any of the wording or the creatures or the genre, the milieu, whatever you want to say. It's none of that stuff. It's a guy sitting there with a group of people around a table. And that guy is the, the game master, the storyteller, whatever. And everybody is playing an individual role. And they partake in this ongoing story. And when something comes up that they need to determine what happens, then the DM comes up with some form of system that fits that situation right there. Or you're playing cards, everybody roll a six-sided dice five times. Whoever has the highest number, uh, you can also turn in two dice and then roll them again. And he just basically makes a system right up on the fly on how that game works. And everybody rolls the dice and the dice determine uh, the physics or the chance or okay. the reality, uh, the unpredictability of what happens. You know, I, I go jump on a horse from the top of the barn. Well, <laughs> roll three dice. And if you roll a 12 or better on all three dice combined, you land on your horse. <laughs> okay. If but, you're below that, that you, you land on the ground. And yeah. suddenly you've created something that the game master can't quite control. And the player can't quite control. Uh, and then it's exciting. It's like a game of blackjack <laughs> yeah. where you can't control what cards you get. The blackjack dealer, he can't control what cards he gets. You can't control <laughs> what cards you get, but you get that thrill of there's something that might happen. Yeah. You know, and you also get the thrill of that. That's the catharsis of the game. You also get the thrill of um uh you get the thrill of being able to choose your own destiny in the game. Uh and so that's really what Blackmore brings is just that architecture. And that's the real paradigm shift. But without Gary, you don't get all of the red dragons, blue dragons, green dragons. You don't get fireballs and wizards and heroes and this sort of thing. And he codified it and put it, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Ford, you know, Ford did not invent the automobile. <laughs> And Dave Arneson didn't invent the entire automobile, but he eventually put all of the ideas together from Dave Wesley and from other games using a referee. But then he kind of took this concept of childhood play and he stuck it into gaming yeah. and said, yeah, right, we should right. just be able to make up whatever we want to make up. Right. But right. there's going to be some rules and you things are determined, have to have a reality of of physics limiting you or or that sort of thing and so that's the the paradigm shift right there is role-playing game and so it doesn't you know dnd is a role-playing game blackmore was a role-playing game but anything can be i mean it could be a western it could be civil war it could you could have a role-playing game set in any genre the most popular one is obviously fantasy because there's no connection to any historical limitations. Uh, you can just say it's magic. <laughs> That's why it works this way. Yeah. And but so, Gary, but Gary that was a very good answer. I, I feel like yeah. I oh, yeah. really get it up. Yeah. yeah. But but, so, uh, but we can say that, that Gary recognized the yeah. potential for this idea. And that was uh, certainly he brought his own uh, uh, 
knowledge of of fantasy literature and infused this uh, this this structure with that but he also uh, recognized the potential of this game and he's without gary i mean he's the one who um uh you know uh basically uh, risked his 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 life uh to publish this game he's the one who really believed in its potential and 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 he, he did the his, hard work. He did the hard work of putting policy. it. Yeah, he did the hard work of putting it into a product, something that yeah. could be shared with people right, right. and sold. Yeah. yeah, well, sold. Yeah, and sold. But, yeah. I mean, because Dave Arneson, you, you know, if if he hadn't met Gary, it could have just been something that was done in the '70s by these guys in Minnesota, and only those guys would have known about it. Maybe twenty people would have known about the game. But then with Gary, right, tens of millions of people know the game now. So and that's the other element of that Gary brings to this is that he really is a salesman. I mean, he sold this game uh, and, and bootstrapped it, really. It wasn't like he had very – he didn't have extensive resources. He didn't have a partnership. He tried to get the game published elsewhere. They and many of him. these did, and they <laughs> laughed, and they turned him down because nobody had seen a game like this before. Yeah. And there was and, nothing to sell, right? That's something you said, right. I guess there was no, so what, when you're buying Dungeons and Dragons, what are you getting in this? Well, initially you're buying three booklets. You're just buying you're, booklets. You're not so even buying the it. dice. And here's There's the no characters board. and here's yeah. the, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, later they added some of those elements. They added the, the geomorphs and the dice and, and so forth, but yeah. that didn't exist initially. Yeah. And so part of his genius uh, is his salesmanship. And his ability to uh, write, you know, articles and all the fanzines and promote this game and build, uh, build upon it, and his character—I mean, his just his his raw charisma—sold the game. So we touched upon Gen Con and and that idea of the convention, but the idea, these conventions were really central to that early gaming community. Gen Con wasn't the only one; there were others. There was another significant one that uh, called Origins, which was more East Coast. That was founded by uh, Avalon Hill. Um, and so there was a competition between these conventions. So, you know, one sort of centered around traditional historical war games and Gen Con, which um, was more about sort of fantasy gaming or Gary's fantasy gaming. And so there was this competition between these these two conventions and they were held maybe only a month or two apart in, in yeah. summers. Right. Mm -hmm. And but. What would happen is at these conventions is Gary would lead a game of Dungeons and Dragons. And his charisma, his ability to create that imagined environment and draw players in uh, suddenly became a bit of a tipping point where the game was sort of, you know, didn't really find its its maybe its customer base or its audience. And then suddenly something clicks and we attributed in our podcast anyway to to gary's salesmanship and his charisma and his ability to sell this game and to inspire others to play it he wasn't a perfect person by any measure and we explore that a lot in the podcast too i mean i think that's one thing that i think distinguishes our uh podcast from some of the other material is, that's out there is that we're really trying to paint maybe a fuller picture of a person who has flaws uh, but also has enormous gifts. Yeah. 
and we try to, you know, and they sometimes go together as they often do with, with very influential people, you know, per, you know, there is not an influential person who does not have a flaw. Right. And that is exploring that relationship between the flaw and, and, the, and the, and the gifts that a person may have uh, is one thing that drew me to the story and certainly drew, draws me to this character. Uh, well, I call him, I mean, he's a person, but as you know, he's a character in our podcast anyway. Um, um, and so his, his ability to sell this game is really what I believe anyway, um, has propelled it to, to its heights. Now, he also had the good fortune of a number of, um, uh, world events at the, you know, circling this game at the same time. And, and, and we explore this, the game really, uh, accelerated and really uh, expanded into the entire national consciousness because of uh, a really a single event. I mean, certainly it was on its way. It was gaining popularity. They published the game in 1974 um, and it gained incrementally in popularity and they were expanding and they were reaching college towns and it was uh ha had really uh, uh built an audience and built a, a customer base certainly through Gary's efforts through a number of books that he was publishing at that time developments of the game but suddenly what happens in uh 1979 is a college kid goes missing and we haven't gotten to this part in the No, this podcast. is not another. <laughs> so so right now Isaac, we're we're up through episode 3 of this podcast but yeah, we've yeah, got yeah. we've got so much more to go. No, but I keep but, going. I want to But what's know. coming is is this single really consequential event that um propels the game again into the national consciousness and that is this college kid goes missing and that event uh generates all of this earned media. Yeah, suddenly, it's the suddenly, it's yeah. the viral it's the viral event that makes D and D and a national international uh, phenomena. Right. I mean, suddenly it's on overdrive. So essentially, the the uh, the family hires an investigator. The police show up, and they're wondering. Uh, they start hearing that maybe this kid was playing a live version of Dungeons and Dragons down in the steam tunnels of the college, and. Uh, could mysticism, could, was there some satanic uh, influence or something on this kid that he uh, drew from the game D&D? &D? And suddenly that narrative just hits every newspaper and every uh, uh, news organization in the country. And now everybody's asking this question. Everybody's Dungeons wondering, what is Dungeons and Dragons? Wow. And suddenly it goes from, you know, who, I, I can't remember the sales figures off the top of my head, but essentially sales double and triple in a matter of months. It was actually Gary who, who, did, who disappeared. The kid. Yeah, by yeah. No, they <laughs> find like the in 1978. The yeah. In 1978, they clear a million. Uh, and then dollars by or, 1982, or it's like 32 million. So games or dollars, <laughs> dollars, dollars. Okay, cool. Millions and they're selling these things for like 12, dollars, ten dollars a pop. It, at that time? it depends. There's a lot of different yeah. products by this time, but the initial set was only ten dollars. Yeah. However, at the time, I think it 
with dice and everything, it was about $50 in 1970 money. It was very yeah. expensive. And yeah, right. a lot of war gamers were like, why would I pay this much money for this thing? Yeah. And I don't even get anything. I just get this. Right. There's no right. board and there's no game pieces with it. You know, yeah. I have to buy the dice separately. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right. Right. So, okay. So can you guys talk a little bit about, I mean, I'm so excited to hear this whole, uh, where it's going with this, the disappearance and the panic. Um, but the parts that we are in the, the existing three episodes that you can listen to, um, there's a, a lot brewing of conflict over the business. So can you guys mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, let's see. Where should we begin? Start with um, the founding of the game in October of 1973. <laughs> right. So I think we still haven't. We, well, I'll, we still I'll, haven't actually the, founded. I'll the give game. the I'll give the lead in here. Oh, okay. We're going back. Okay. We're, yeah. We're, so we're, going back in time, the historian is yeah. forcing a reversion. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fine. All right. So, <clears throat> so after Gary gets this game idea presented to him, he immediately decides to collaborate with Dave. They need to turn it into some kind of game that can be sold. They're not really sure what it is or what it could be called. And as Adam said, they take this game to a couple companies. They're like, well, there's no board. <laughs> or how do you win this game? You can't win this game. They don't want to buy this game. So, so company after company turns them down. And eventually Gary decides, you know what? Uh, I don't think that... Um, I think I've got to start my own game company to publish this because no one else is going to publish it, but I value this thing enough, this concept. I have enough faith in this concept, this game, this idea to uh, start a company just to publish this game. Mm. And so he starts a company in October of 1973 called Tacticals Studies Rules. Uh, and he goes back and collaborates with his old friend, Jeff Perrin, who created the chain mail game with him, a medieval war game. And uh, the, the two of them create another game called Cavaliers and Roundheads. They're hoping that this English Civil War game, which is a miniatures game, will generate enough money so that they can publish D&D because it's kind of expensive to publish because yeah. so it's, it's three books. Cavaliers books and, books. and Roundheads. Cavaliers and Roundheads. Cavaliers based on the English Civil War, everybody's favorite war. Okay, so yeah, just, right. like, I, I think know. we should, we should, uh, I think we should describe where Gary is a bit at this point in his life. I mean, he's, because we haven't really touched on this in this podcast anyway. So Poor. Gary at, at this point is he's, uh, I, uh, what is he? He's in the early thirties at this point, yeah. uh, in his life. He's had a, he doesn't have a college degree. He's gone back to school, but he, he doesn't, he never finished school. Um, he spent most of his early career, uh, uh, as an adjuster uh, working in Chicago, and he would take a, a, a two hour commute each way from Lake Geneva to Chicago every day, five days a week, two hours there two two hours back. Uh, the reason they lived in Lake Geneva is uh, it was way more uh, affordable for for him. And at this point, he had five children. Right. So he's in his early 30s and he has five children to support. Eventually, he gets fired from this insurance company. He returns to Lake Geneva full time and decides to write. He takes unemployment and he's writing on the side. And everything he writes uh, as a as a uh, a fiction writer is rejected. Nothing gets published. He has no success 
but he spends every weekend playing games and building this game community because that's what he loves. He's 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 a fan. He just is so uh, deeply entrenched in this world and passionate about it. And he's writing letters. And again, as we said, he's in the fanzines and and he's building these communities. But it's not making any money. So he decides uh, somebody he, in the he does well, have he, a side business, but then he has a little side business, which he <laughs> he cobbles together, literally, <laughs> yeah, which right. is cobbling shoes. <laughs> somebody in the in the community in Lake Geneva, uh, their father dies and the son sells Gary this shoe cobbling equipment, which he puts in his basement. And so he's literally a shoe cobbler. Well, but he's but making, even before even know. before that, he has a bunch of like blue collar jobs that are completely messing up. Oh, well, he right? yeah, yeah yeah. There's a fun there's a fun uh, uh, story that Rob Koontz tells. Rob Koontz is a, is another story. He's a kid that Gary uh, essentially adopts as his own own son. Uh, uh, he meets him when he's about twelve years old or something like that, living in G Lake Geneva. That's an, another piece of this story. Um, but in any event. Uh, yeah, I mean, he just can't find work. I mean, really, the shoe cobbling is is really a last resort. He's trying to find work in this small town. And a lot of the surrounding industry in this town is is uh, is manufacturing. And so he uh, a friend of his who later becomes his business partner um says uh gary why don't you come uh take a job here at this metal factory lake geneva uh metalworks am i butchering that paul uh lake geneva metal spinning yeah metal, excuse me lake geneva spinning. Uh, metal spinning mm -hmm. and so he shows up one day and and it's so physical and so physically demanding he just he can't even walk the next day essentially <laughs> is the way they tell it so yeah. really by default he you know he finds this this uh shoe cobbling uh, set of shoe cobbling equipment. He buys it. He borrows money from his mother and sets up this shoe cobbling business while he is still gaming and writing games and getting little uh, uh, games here and there published through Guide on Games, which we mentioned earlier, which is one of the uh, fledgling game companies at the time. But that's really his life. That I mean, you can imagine the the finances of a, of, of of somebody like this. In the seventies, are people in Wisconsin like still buying cobbled shoes? Like, is that even a? Can you even do that? Like, aren't they buying well, Nikes? It, it was <laughs> like, it was most, it was you, it was shoe repair. Shoe repair. Okay, repair. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like people would wear out their heels of their hundred eighty dollar floor shimes and. He would yeah. go and put new heels on it or new soles on it, but yeah. but they're they're living because Isaac they're living in a in a yeah. town that is really a resort town. Right, I mean, this right, is right. where rich people from Chicago decamp yeah. for the summer and live in their mansion. Uh, so it, they're really two classes. I mean, it's a little like that that um, piece you wrote, um, <laughs> yeah, in a way, sure. right? Yeah. Because there's yeah. the service class, and then there's the visiting class. Yeah, and yeah. and that is. Lake Geneva. And so it's this beautiful bucolic uh, town, but underneath it is this, are these, are the people that, that, um, that serve yeah. that, that class. And he's one of those people. And so he has no money. I mean, he has no resources. He's dead broke, uh, but happy. I mean, I, his wife is, is, you know, describes, how close the family was at that time, despite, you know, I mean, it's, it's like any family, they had their uh, tribulations, but, but ultimately very, you know, relatively content, but he has ambitions. 
but he doesn't have any money. And suddenly he, you know, again, he, as Paul was describing, he decides uh, to partner with a childhood friend. His childhood friend sells his life insurance policy for a thousand dollars. And with that thousand dollars, they publish, well, they hope to publish D&D, but again, nobody knows what this new type of game is. It's so brand new. And he knows he has a fan base. He has a readership and so forth. And he thinks, well, I can't sell them this new type of game, but if I can sell them a, a game they're familiar with, I can earn enough to publish this new type of game. And as Paul was describing, that first game was Cavaliers and Roundheads. That's the first game from this new company that Gary uh, founds with his childhood friend. Um, so anyway, oh, we lost Paul. Yeah, I think we may have <laughs> lost Paul for a second there. Um, uh, okay, so... Um, but I, I, I only bring that up to, you know, he again, he's taking such a great risk uh, because... I, I bring it up. I, I really wanted to emphasize just how poor he yeah, was. No, he's which got is five great, children, yeah. five kids to support. Totally. Uh, and that's why we need the screenwriter because you're, yeah, you're building the characters. Somebody has <laughs> yeah, to build these right. characters. Right. Um, I think we lost the historian at the key moment here, but um, okay. So I, I'm sure he'll, he'll reappear. He must've just gotten kicked off. Yeah. But um, so keep going in terms of what happens now. So they um, sell, they're selling basically roundheads to Cavaliers and roundheads, Cavaliers yeah. and roundheads yeah. to try and pay for the business because uh, nobody's going to buy Dungeons and Dragons yet because it's just too weird and, and no one's really getting it. So that they have That's to right. sell this other game in order to do the game that they really want. Right. Okay. And, and, it, and it doesn't really work. Uh, right. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it doesn't really work. And so they have to, here's Paul. Hi, Paul. Sorry. We lost <laughs> you. We lost you there for a second, but we're, we're doing a good job covering for history. We're yeah. right, right at the part where, uh, they're selling Cavaliers and roundheads to try and fund D and D because nobody's going to buy D and D that's where we are. Right. Right. And, and I'm saying it doesn't really work. That idea doesn't really work. So, well, it, no. so Gary's got this idea for this game. Uh, he wants to found a company. He founds it with a man named Don Kay, who is his childhood buddy. And Don Kay, and he uh, he's the one who got him the job when he loses a job, Fireman's Fund. He's the one who gets him the job at the metal spinning uh, uh, shop in Lake Geneva. And so, so they go into business together. They try this plan. Uh, one of the ideas is that Don K is going to cash in his life insurance policy as being a mail carrier and, um, it's still not enough money. They bring another partner in later. Uh, but, uh, the, the plan isn't working and Gary goes to his, uh, mother <laughs> who he had already borrowed money, uh, for, uh, to, uh, start this cobbling business. And says, "Hey, I got this great idea. It's where you sit around." <laughs> and his mother is like, "No, <laughs> I'm not going." And and uh, Gary's wife at the time, Mary Jo, said she'd buy us all kinds of things. You know, she wanted us to have a dishwasher. She wanted us to have a color TV. She'd buy us all kinds of stuff that we didn't need. But then when it came to this, she was like, "Nope, not going <laughs> to, not going to invest in it." And so Gary turns to his friend, Don K, gets this $1,000 from the life insurance policy, Don K's life insurance policy. 
sells Cavaliers and Roundheads is doing okay, but they're just not getting it. And a lot of people are starting to get really interested in fantasy. They've been playing Chainmail with the fantasy section for a couple of years now, and fantasy is really starting to catch on. Gary's starting to get scared that he's going to get scooped somehow on this game idea. And so he brings in a, a third partner whose name is Brian Bloom, who's just a local gamer. Uh, he's out of, uh, I think, um, um, uh, out Elkhorn. of Illinois somewhere. Elkhorn. Uh, no, it's like, I want to say oh, Wakanda. Oh, Wakanda. Yeah, Wakanda. Wakanda. <laughs> no. It's, Wakanda. Is it Wakanda? It is. It's not, it's not Wakanda. It is. is it? Yeah. It might be. Anyways, right. he, he's, he's from that area of Illinois, but he comes down and he games at Gary's house and he becomes part of Gary's regular gaming group. And he really, he's comes to Gen Con. He really wants to be part of this fledgling game company that Gary has started. And so they let him come in for 2000 bucks and in uh, late 73, uh, and now they have enough money to publish D&D. And then Adam, tell them what happens once they get it published and they're already start selling it. <laughs> well, I was just, I was just uh, checking that fact here, uh, but yes, it's Wakanda, Illinois. I, uh, see, I was thinking somehow it was tied. It. I thought, am I just thinking of the Black Panther movie? W A U C O N D. I know, so I know, but when I said it, it sounds the same. <laughs> so Brian Bloom is Brian Bloom is one of um uh seven or eight. Uh, he has seven or eight brothers and sisters. He's a big family, but they're wealthy. So Brian has the money. And, he uh, and bought, he's 10 years younger than Gary, 10 too. years younger than Gary. A lot of Gary is far and away the oldest member of this group How old at, 30, at 35, 35, <laughs> at, 35 <laughs> at this point. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, but really, in his life has had very little success, uh, very little. Um, but now he's he, they published this game. Um, and, you know, it's a fun moment because um they have a local print shop printed up, but there's not enough money to collate all the copies. And they, they uh, uh, carry all the boxes over to Gary's and uh, the kids help out and, and everybody chips in and they have this, the, the first run of, of, uh, of a thousand copies of this game, which is referred to now as the Brown box edition. And if you had one of those, Paul, what would it be worth? Uh, 20 or $30,000. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the original yeah. Brown box. The yeah, original there were only box. a thousand of them printed. So, you know, to have that first printing of the game, it's it's uh, it's incredibly rare and yeah. hard to find one. And if it's in good shape or has good provenance, like, you know, it belonged to Gary's uncle's brother's cousin, I don't know, something like, yeah. you know, it has it might have some more cachet to it. So but that that first thousand run that you know, they didn't they didn't sell so quickly i mean they they no. They, as a matter of fact they get it and gary writes this breathless letter to dave arneson saw the books today they look great you know he's so excited and then they don't sell anything for like a month they don't yeah. sell one until the end of january right and, and so it still it's, takes it's a long three time or four weeks before they sell the first copy yeah. they've invested all of this in this crazy idea that everybody told them was a crazy idea but they're so convinced it's great <laughs> And then, bam, they don't sell a single. And so, it takes and what, a month for him to sell one copy. Right. But, I mean, it, it picks up steam, but really it's that, it's again, it's what we mentioned earlier. It's that Gen Con that where Gary, suddenly all the gamers have arrived, and now they have somebody charismatic to explain to them what it is, 
how to play it and and why it's so much fun. And suddenly it takes off. I mean, no, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't immediately take off like a rocket ship as it as it did a few years later after the the uh, uh, disappearance of the college kid, as I mentioned. But nonetheless, uh, it catches on. It begins to catch on, obviously, with college kids, with younger younger gamers, people with with uh, imaginations or uh, anyone who's open to this idea of a new kind of game. It suddenly begins and they start printing more copies and more copies and. They move, they decide, well, we, we really need a headquarters now. And they buy an old house on William Street in Lake Geneva called, and they refer to it as the Old Gray House. And they uh, uh, rip it apart and remake it as an office. But it's very, very small. And suddenly now the dream is becoming a reality. It's not just a fanciful idea anymore. Now it's becoming a business. And you start this new business with there maybe are more people. I know we've left a few of them out of the podcast, but really we we want to focus on sort of nine core people that Gary and Brian, Brian Bloom, his partner, pull from uh, 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 Minneapolis and St. Paul. Uh, there's a, a magazine editor that they bring up from uh, from Illinois, Tim Kask. Uh, and Gary hires Rob and Terry Kuntz, who are, again, those kids from the neighborhood that Gary really um, adopt, almost adopted as his own children. They start working at the company, and then you've got a, a number of key players from, again, Minneapolis and St. Paul, and one of them is Dave Arneson, of course, the guy he co-created this game with. Uh, and then there's a, a somebody else named Mike Carr, who was a, a young, very young game. He was in his early 20s. He had designed a game called Fight in the Skies. Um, and, and somebody else named Dave McGarry, uh, who was a close friend of, of Arneson's. He was there the night that Arneson showed Gary Blackmore. And McGarry has a mind for uh, numbers. He's he's very methodical, and he brings him in as a treasurer. So there are there are nine people now in this house, and they're they're fighting for this dream. And there there's it's it's such an optimistic, promising moment. But what ends up happening, and and I think this is where the the story part of this kicks in, where you're you're sort of drifting away from the the raw history of of you know, and the mechanics of how the game was created and so forth. And now you get into these personalities. And when you bring nine people with uh, opposing philosophies, different viewpoints of where this company should go or how, how they should be treated as employees, and now you put them in a house and suddenly you see this tension begin to emerge. Between yeah, them. And they're it's all, not a dream anymore. They're all 10 years younger than Gary except for Don Kay. Don Kay and Gary are now in their uh, mid to later 30s. And all these other guys are in their mid tw mid 20s or early 20s. Well, we, so we, did, we did miss a major part of the story in our retelling yeah. of it, which is when Don Kay dies of a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, so, so, so we missed that part, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Wait, how old is Arneson at this point? Well, he graduates college 21 in 1971. So he's only 23, 24 Whoa. years old yeah. when they published the game. Oh, so and then, he's way younger than Gary. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, okay, okay. Gary is, is as we say in the podcast, sort of the elder statesman of this group. And it's peculiar, right? I mean, you have this 
guy who's 10 years, 12 years, maybe even 15 years older than some of the people he's playing with. And you think, well, that seems kind of weird. Right. But, but Paul describes it very well. Uh, the, 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 most of the people, if you're, if you're sort of trying to break rules and push boundaries, you're going to draw from younger people because people involved in this world were so committed to this idea of a historical wargaming. They wanted games that were rooted in history that did not deviate from history. Um, and, and certainly this idea of fantasy was, uh, violated every every concept that they held dear right so so they were opposed to that and here's gary trying to push the game into new directions and push boundaries and you've got to find people with that kind of mindset and that drifted gary towards younger people and yeah, so and I, I would say that the really remarkable part of role-playing games is it is essentially what kids do on the playground when they're seven, eight, nine, ten years old, they're just playing make believe on the playground, and they make up rules. You know, okay, we're on Mars. <laughs> okay, what are you guys <laughs> playing? Well, we're on Mars. Yeah. Uh, well, can I play? Yeah, sure. Go down the slide, and then you're on Mars, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so right. that's the sort of creative, imaginative play. But only kids play that way. Adults yeah. never play that way. They stop. Yeah. yeah. And so suddenly you've got this type of game where you're right back there playing childhood make-believe. Yes, it's structured, it's played on a tabletop, but it's a group of young-minded people or creative-minded people all kind of collaborating to make a story happen. And, uh, you know, uh, it has rules and it has certain boundaries and it has certain uh, definitions but it's not much different than those kids playing Mars on the playground. And so, you know, if you're going to get somebody to play childish games with you, essentially, you know, you're not going to get some stuffy, uh, you know, 50 uh, year old professor, insurance yeah. salesman right, yeah. to play with you, unless it's Gary Gygax. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so we're in the house. Uh, yep, Arneson's right. in the house. He's one of the nine. Gary's the well, elder statesman. Yeah. Is, is Arneson just one of just just yeah. before this yeah, just is. before this happens, they're doing okay. Gary hasn't even taken a paycheck yet. It's early 1975. They've been selling for about a year. Things are going pretty good, you know, for a game company at that time. They were doing amazing <laughs> compared to other game companies, which were just making peanuts. They're actually starting to make some money, but none of them are taking a salary. But they put all this money towards publish, uh, doing a second printing and getting a whole line of new products together. And they have this great potential moment. Uh, and then, and then something happens, Adam, you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what happens? Well, Adam? well uh, what happens is, is they, they're all in this house and you sort of begin to recognize, um, the conflicts between these people. Uh, they each have their own conflict. It's it's nine people with 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 nine conflicts essentially. So, um, I mean, you could run through them, and we do in the in the podcast. But uh, a lot of it is really revolves around the fact that Gary and Brian are trying to grow a business, and they're surrounded by people 
maybe who can't appreciate that yet. They're not at a, I would say if I were analyzing it, they're just not at a place in their life yet where they understand that you have to make a sacrifice. And or Brian, just to, to just to, just yeah. to remind people, Brian is Brian Bloom. Yeah. Who's the money guy. He comes from money and he's kind of bought his way in. He's, he's come from money. When Don yeah. K dies, uh, Don K's wife wants to get bought out. And they're saddled with debt. They haven't made a whole lot of money on this game yet. Um, uh, They've got to keep printing games to remain a viable company. And they need, they desperately need an infusion of cash. And so Brian goes to his father and uh, pitches him. And uh, we don't really know what that relationship looked like. There's really no evidence of, of why this would happen. But uh, effectively, Brian convinces his father to invest, uh, what is it, $25,000 into the company, which is a huge amount. Of, I mean, this is $25,000 in 1975. So uh, we'll have to use the inflation calculator. But that's a lot of money. It's a couple hundred thousand dollars yeah, yeah. that he's putting into this company. Right. So that's how much money the Blooms have, right? that that uh, uh, Melvin Bloom, Brian's father, um, wants to support his, his son or is convinced to support his son or convinced to support this business to the tune of a couple hundred thousand dollars. That's significant. So they take this money, they they buy out uh, their 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 partner, the uh, uh, Donna K. His wife, Donna K. They buy out that that partner. Uh, they uh, reincorporate the company. They publish a bunch of new games and they settle into this house. But what happens in that dynamic, because Don K dies, they have issued shares uh, to, and, and Brian Bloom buys shares in the company. And so what you see is that the Bloom family now has a dominant position right. yeah. in the company. And Gary, the creator of the game, co-creator of the game, and co-founder of the company, is a minority shareholder. He has fewer shares than the Blooms and will always have fewer shares. He he tries to catch up, but what you find out as you research the the entire scope of the story is that there is this sort of silent game going on with shares, with a battle for shares, because anyone who controls those shares controls the company. If you control the company, you control the game. Right. Now – Gary tries to gain that a little bit over the course of the story, right? He thinks, well, if you have the game, you control the game, you also control the company. So there's this shifting dynamic between control of the game, control of the shares, and control of the company that plays out over the next 10 years. But it all begins right here when Melvin Bloom invests that $25,000 and becomes the majority shareholder at that time. Certainly, the the Bloom family becomes a majority shareholder. But what happens as a result of all of these tensions? So I'll just to give you an example. Um, um, Dave McGarry has a vision for what this company could be. He spent years uh, or he spent the summer or, or, or half a year or something working in the copy center of the Harvard Law School. But he read everything that came through the Harvard Law School, including business papers, and and fundamental ideas and notions of how to run a business. And he presents this to Gary and Gary's offended. 
How, why would you think that I don't know that? I mean, essentially, he's Gary's very offended by Dave McGarry and their relationship fractures because of it. And then they have something, you know, they have a sort of a, a, a side conflict because uh, McGarry's trying to get his own game published for uh, or sold at a certain price. And and there's some shipping conflict. And he thinks Gary is trying to pull a fast one with with these shipping rules and these uh, 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 to Australians. So anyway, ultimately, um, their relationship fractures. And then there are more examples of that. Uh, Rob, for instance, wants to uh, he wants to he doesn't want to do shipping anymore. He wants to he wants to write games. Why is he stuck in shipping? Of course, he's 18, 19 years old. So he <laughs> he maybe doesn't understand yet or fully appreciate yet the the temporary sacrifice he might have to make for the company to grow. Because I'm I, I'm I think personally and, and Paul may I don't know, Paul may maybe you agree. I think. Gary probably would have given him a greater role in the company over time, but it's just that at that time they had, if they had an order coming in, you had to get the game out the door because that's how you got paid. And that's how you built the business. And suddenly all of these people in the company start taking on roles. They didn't want Dave Arneson was hired to attract more games because he's the liaison to that whole community in, in Lake Geneva, in, excuse me, in, in the twin cities. Uh, and he's a game designer. He's obviously a brilliant game designer, but these games have to go out. They have, they have the, the brass tacks of the business just demands that these games get boxed up and put in the mail and there's nobody else to do it. And so Dave Arneson's stuck in shipping because there's nothing else for They don't need a game designer right now. They need the games in the box and out the door and they need money coming in. Right. And so McGarry describes this as an upstairs downstairs division. Because literally the house, <laughs> you had uh, the uh, president of the company and the officers of the company. Uh, and then downstairs, you have the hobby shop being run by the hobby shop manager and the treasurer and the shipping department. And so McGarry calls it this sort of upstairs, yeah. downstairs mentality starts right. setting in. And, you know, everybody came because they loved games and they wanted to design games. But now they're all having to do, you know, the nitty gritty work of running a business. You know, somebody's got to sweep the floors and mow the lawn. Yeah. <laughs> but it isn't Gary that's doing it or Brian that's doing it. It happens right. to be the downstairs guys, Terry Kuntz and Rob Kuntz and, and eventually Dave Arneson, because uh, the house is so small, he doesn't really have an office because he comes later. And so he kind of gets stuck in shipping and he ends up being really good at shipping. And so instead of moving him out of shipping to let him go game design, they just kind of keep him there. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, because as McGarry says, he can clear a hundred orders in one afternoon and nobody else can ship that quickly, but right. it just happens to be something Dave is good at. And then, and and so, then they have conflicts between yeah. themselves too, because Arneson came with some games. I mean, he had other games that he had already written before he even showed up and that he wanted published. And he gets in this uh, feud with the publisher of the magazine that they, uh, that, that, that they have created uh, called the dragon that they publish out of that, that old gray house. And the two of them just don't get along. They're like oil and vinegar, essentially. Uh, they, they, they rib each other constantly. Um, we have a couple anecdotes in the podcast about, about what that looked like, but essentially they don't get along. 
And so uh, you've got sort of internal feuds um, all the way around. It's not just with Gary and Brian, but ultimately what happens is all of these nine people also become shareholders. And again, we go back to this, this, this idea of, of, of the power hold, resting with who holds the most shares. And so, uh, and of course, as a, as a corporation, every year they have a shareholder meeting where um, uh, a shareholder could propose an idea to effectuate some kind of change. And most of these people are getting a little bit, you know, they, they just see a different direction for the company. Uh, and that includes Dave McGarry, who by this time quits. He's already quit. He's had, you know, the, his relationship with Gary uh, and their differing views of where the company might go um, has already sort of reached its climax and, and, and McGarry has quit. But he's still in town and he's going to attend the shareholder meeting. And they come up with this idea of expanding the board if they can vote. Together, if they can, if the, if, okay, they're not going to get Gary, but if everybody else can pull together, they can advance an idea to expand the board to three people. Now it won't just be Gary and Brian holding, holding all the cards. Now you'll get maybe a more of a balance. Actually, the, the proposal is for, is for two additional board members, but, um, what's Spoiler. important. Yeah, we're not going to tell them what happens next. <laughs> but because but the it's idea, one of the best parts of the entire. It, yeah, but well, the idea, the, the idea that is that is, is that McGarry McGarry thinks, what if we had Melvin Bloom on the board, Brian's father? Then it doesn't matter how many shares Gary has because Brian will vote with us and will steamroll Gary. So all of these. These these surround everybody besides Gary and Brian, sort of collectively decide. Well, let's try and steamroll Brian and Gary, and reclaim the company. All right. Well, we don't have to if if you guys don't want to say what happens uh, next. I think we do get past this in the existing three episodes. Yes, we do. Uh, <laughs> we we go just past this. I'm then, just teasing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, why why don't we at least get up to where the the podcast that's out goes and then we won't go too much further although i want to just like a little bit of a preview oh sure so so wh what happens where where in the three episodes that are out where does it le where is the story left off and then give us just a little preview of where we're going because i know what happens with gary is fascinating he goes to hollywood and gets divorced and stuff so uh tell us where we're at and then where we're going so where we're at right now is this huge uh, uh, moment in the company where uh, essentially these relationships fracture. And what does the aftermath of the aftermath of that look like? And how do how does Gary continue? Um, how do they rebuild the company when they've alienated so many people within it? Um, so that's a little piece of, of what's coming next. And of course, I'm not giving anything away here because anybody who follows the story knows that, that Dave Arneson is effectively pushed out of this company. He's pushed out of the company that is publishing the game that he co-created. Yeah, right. Cause, and then he, so he's relegated to packing boy 
to packing. Which is like, and, of yeah. course, that's then, not going to work. And then eventually he's ousted from the company. He's oh. ousted from the company and you know, makes some effort to, to compete with them on his own, with his own competing products, which of course this company doesn't like. <laughs> and you see this feud just grow and expand. Uh, it's not just contained within the company anymore. Now it's, it's, it's lawsuits and depositions and, uh, you know, uh, scouring the books for, for residual payments and royalties and so forth. Uh, and so that feud just expands as this game just takes off like a rocket ship, rocket ship across America and across the world. Yeah. Because yeah. of really because of that earned media event of a college kid going missing. Wow. And suddenly the media scrutiny on this game uh, cr really creates a phenomenon because that isn't the only event that happens. It's not just the disappearance of the one college kid. Suddenly there's a, there's a, a murder, uh, somebody gets killed or there's a murder or a murder suicide or some, uh, you know, we, we touch on a, on a few of them in this episode coming up. Um, but there are so many events that suddenly this really becomes um, really just occupies so much of what I call sort of the mental real estate of the U.S. in those early 80s. Yeah. And because of how popular it becomes, uh, the game takes off, but it's horrible. But the company that publishes it, TSR, Gary's company, is just so horribly mismanaged. So while the game's taking off, the company itself is falling apart. Well, and Gary goes off and... And then Gary leaves the company yeah. to uh, set up shop in Hollywood because their big vision is to make the D&D &D movie. And this is like 83, 82, 83. They decide and they buy a house, or excuse me, they rent a house, an old, a, a direct King Vidor's mansion uh, on Summit Drive in the Hollywood Hills with a pool and a gardener and a chef and, and Gary turns his back on Lake Geneva. He's sick of the infighting. Uh, he's sick of, he's sick of, uh, of, of the, 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 you know, he, he has a, obviously his own domestic issues feud with his wife and so forth. And he sets up shop in, in Hollywood. And I call it the, uh, the playboy mansion for nerds, essentially <laughs> he said, because it becomes a, a real party center. I mean, he throws a lot of parties and he, and Gary has a moment um, of, of, uh, of really sort of succumbing to uh, you, what you would might call Hollywood decadence, you know, and it's and, perfect for this story. yeah it's the best and yeah exactly well i don't and want then, to ruin too much about it, but yeah i mean that's where it goes and then you know we finally wrap up really really where the story goes is the final showdown between gary and his and his partners uh brian bloom and and another uh and brian's brother who becomes a major character in the story kevin bloom so it's really about Gary, Brian, and Kevin in the final act of who controls this company. Correct. Really, the big the big question is who who controls this company? Yeah, whose company well, is it? And you're will well, Gary ever get it back? Right. 
Yeah. You're setting that up very well in, in the beginning, like we, introducing Brian is, is well done. You can tell that that's going to come back. Right? <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah. Well, that, that's the whole part of this story. Yeah. You know, uh, there's all these characters with their flaws and their peculiarities and their dynamic between all of the other players in this. And right from the founding of the company and the creation of the game, you see these little seeds planted and uh, they're all just riding this dragon, <laughs> which is Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, riding. They're riding this phenomenon like a dragon and it really exposes and lays raw all of their um, personality flaws, their, yeah. their character peculiarities, their tendencies. And it's fascinating to see it kind of all unravel through time and it doesn't really matter what they're doing until a certain point but dungeons and dragons is so big that they're just making money hand over fist and so it doesn't matter how they're managing the company at a certain point because it's so fabulously popular they're just selling out of the game constantly and they're just making money hand over fist. And Gary's got a great royalty deal on the stuff he's written. And he's getting tons of money and royalties. And he's living like a king out in California. But eventually, uh, you know, the like all phenomena, it begins to fade. And then the cracks start to show. Yeah. And that's when it kind of falls apart for people. But you see how it is, you know, the foundations of the company, how they're built way back in 1973, 74, 75, and what eventually happens to it as it gets exposed for what it really is uh, in the mid eighties. Yeah. 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 Well, it's a great story. I don't want to, again, I think we should, we should uh, <laughs> wrap it up here because I, I, we want people to tune into the, to, to, to the actual podcast. So um, let me just kind of finalize with this. Paul, when did you, because it's just such a paradigm shift and it, it transcends this little world that they're in mm -hmm. and it bubbles over to getting everybody involved in this. And I think everybody, you know, everything from here on out in American culture, I mean, magic cards, so many phenomenon seem to be rooted in this moment, both because of the way the game is played and because of the fantasy elements. It's kind of like both at the same time. So when did you personally discover Dungeons and Dragons and, and what was it about it that was so enthralling? Well, it would have been in 1981 and I was just, you know, about to be a freshman in high school. And I really was part of that first wave when the satanic panic was blowing up D and D in the newspapers and, you know, that's the reason why I knew about it. My friends knew about it. And, you know, even though it was something that all of the parents at that time were, you know, afraid of, uh, most of them, you know, because of the way it was being portrayed in the news, well, this kid committed suicide and they found D&D &D books in his room. It must be D&D, &D, you know, yeah, <laughs> the, right. uh, the correlation equaling causation was not real strong. <laughs> they didn't really get that part of things. So at that time I started playing, I think my brother, uh, my brother Don got a, a game from one of his friends. One of his friends had uh, cancer and while he was in the hospital, he could only have one visitor. And that was my 
brother. And so my brother would go and sit on the hospital bed with his best friend. And they were in sixth grade at the time and they'd play Dungeons and Dragons on the bed together. And eventually uh, this friend bought the set for my brother for his birthday in 1981. And my brother said, here, Paul, you read this. It's got a lot of words. You're good at words. <laughs> and so I read the rules and everybody was out playing one summer day and every, they were all having fun playing basketball, running around, skateboarding, doing whatever. And I read the rules in about an hour. And then I went outside and I said, okay, I'm ready to play. <laughs> and we all came in and we started playing. And, you know, I'm still friends with all of those people. They were my brother's friends. They weren't my friends, you know, and I had my own friends too at the time. We played that game uh, nonstop until uh, we graduated from high school. And, um, and uh, so, uh, like I said, we stopped playing when we all went to high school and then I played continued to high school. And then when college came, uh, then that definitely broke everybody up. There was no one gaming together after that. And then it wasn't until, uh, you know, uh, 10 years later when I got married that everybody said, you know, we used to play the heck out of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> we really should get back together and play again. Yeah. And, you know, I get together with guys who are, uh, you know, doctors and presidents of banks and, uh, high paid CEOs in in, uh, investment corporations. And we've all got kids and families and houses and mortgages and kids going to college. But every Tuesday night we get together just like when we were, you know, 14 years old and play this game and all those memories and all of that, those fond recollections come back. And, you know, it's really great to be able to burn one of your friends by remembering what dumb thing he did back in 1982. <laughs> All right. So, so have you ever experimented with any other games or it's just always been D and D only? Oh yeah, sure. Play lots of other games. Yeah. Uh, Traveler is a science fiction game yeah. based basically on the structure of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Star Frontiers, Gamma World, a post-apocalyptic sort of uh, sort of game that's played and, uh, there's there's lots of different games. Boot Hill is another one, which is a, a Wild West. Like I said, a role playing game doesn't mean fantasy. A, uh, you know, in that that sense of dragons and wizards, a role playing game just means you're playing roles and you're sitting around a table with a shared experience, creating a a narrative or story or an experience uh, with one guy running the game. Uh, the the game master, the dungeon master, the referee, whatever you want to call it. And so we've played all sorts, but we always come back to Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's like you hear people playing today still Dungeons and Dragons. I have friends who play it and you never hear them playing. It's not like another game came up and superseded Dungeons and Dragons. It's like it's still the classic one. It's still the one people. Play. Yeah, not in the same vein of role playing game. You know, right, I mean. Right it's you know i mean once you're the uh once you're the 800 pound gorilla in the room you're <laughs> it's hard to get displaced and right. so D, D was the first and that was what most people associated with their first role-playing game and and so i think that that just carried forward and other games and you know what i think gary realized it uh, i think gary realized that fantasy was the most freeing genre that you could place a role-playing game 
because if it was a Napoleonic role-playing game, well, you know, this happens in this time period and you got to have these buttons and this hat and they only had this kind of musket. But if you're playing fantasy, it can be anything you want. You just, and you, you know, you ultimately just say, well, it's magic, you know, but even science fiction, you've got to have, you know, you got to know the neutrons and the protons (laughs) and quarks and how lasers work. And you need to know that real world physics stuff. And you can have some sort of alien technology that is like magic, but really the most freeing and uh, easily adaptable uh, milieu or, or genre is fantasy because you can literally make whatever you want and no one can say you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a huge fan of the show. I, what are the, uh, I listen to it on Apple podcasts, but what are the platforms that people can find it on? So it's on, uh, 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 Spotify, Apple Podcasts and um, gosh, two others and they're escaping me at the moment. <laughs> oh, oh my God! Oh, no, no, of course, Am- excuse me, Amazon and Amazon. Google, those mm-hmm. small oh. companies. Yeah, Amazon, yeah. Google, uh, Apple, and uh, Spotify. Right, but I think most people uh, listen to it on Apple. Yes. Yeah. When can we expect the next episode? That's <laughs> yeah. As well, soon as we get off this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Right. You guys spent your entire time on this podcast. A couple weeks. A couple weeks. Yeah. A couple okay. weeks. But uh, hoping, hoping to accelerate the, uh, the final, you know, final run here. Um, awesome. So hopefully the wait won't be too long. Okay. So. Cool. Well, yeah, we'll put links in the in the description, and um, yeah, when we were wi- wizards. Yeah. Thank, thanks for having us on. Isaac. Yeah. This is great. Thanks, Isaac. It. Of course. No. Uh, yeah. Um, everybody should listen to this. I'm serious. And it's it's <laughs> just such a that. great story. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, All right. Isaac. Bye. Bye. Bye.